Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. Uh, This episode was actually recorded before Christmas, so I apologize uh, for getting it out late. Uh, I'm playing a bit of catch-up, you know, the holiday seasons, family, work, travel. uh, Excuses, excuses, I know. Um, On this episode, I have a chat with Clement Chu. I originally met Clement when I was researching private security jobs um, just prior to leaving Victoria Police and our move to the UK. Clement... um, is the founder and CEO of Atlas Solutions based in Kuala Lumpur or KL, Malaysia, where I'm, uh, my hometown, where I'm from. Uh, when speaking to Clement, it was quite amazing uh, to sort of see how much our lives paralleled, um, you know, from the sort of international school, uh, you know, attending international schools just down the road from each other, working in the government and then transitioning to the private sector. Um, it, was, it was quite cool to compare the, those experiences um, so yeah, like I said, Clement grew up in the expat community between Malaysia uh, and the UK. Uh, he spent his early sort of adult life at university studying economics, political science, and uh, eventually completing his master's in international development. Um, after university, Clement they basically seamlessly transitioned into a role in a private equity firm. Um, after his time there, he, I think he wasn't sort of quite fulfilled, I suppose you could say. Um, in, in that industry and he sort of set his sights towards a new goal and that was effectively I think returning back to Malaysia um, and um, helping and making the community uh, better making Malaysia safer um, after working on sev- several um, government projects uh, in the Prime Minister's office um, Clement moved towards the private sector and formed his company Atlas Solutions uh, in my opinion uh, Atlas certainly is the the premier security company uh, for close protection, risk management, um, due diligence in in the Southeast Asian region. Uh, And it was the first um, uh, security uh, company that was UK accredited uh, in Malaysia for their close protection. Uh, During the pandemic, uh, whilst obviously travel and uh, various industries were at a standstill, uh, Clement and his business partners remained highly vigilant and shifted to other emergency markets, emerging markets such as uh, the commercial drone sector or un- unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, specifically uh, for agricultural purposes. Um, look, so you know, as I as I sort of transitioned out of the police, Clement was one of the first connections uh, that I got in touch with. Uh, since then, he's always made time for me to answer you know, any questions, provide insights into people in the security industry. Um, and all in all, you know, we've, we've formed this uh, pretty great friendship. Um, so, you know, I appreciate your time, Clement, and um, thanks for being on the podcast. Cheers. Anyways, everyone, this is Clement from uh, Atlas in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Welcome, Clement. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. And um, as usual, uh, the way we format this is I'll just, you know, sort of chronologically go from your upbringing, 
um, you know, your teenage years, your supposed to be formative years, uh, and then uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, current day, and then what's happening in the future. So, um, yeah. So, what was what was your upbringing like? Where did you grow up? Um, what was family life like? What was sort of happening around the world at the time? Okay, so born in 1988. So, I think I can consider myself a true millennial. Yep. <laughs> uh, who grew up during the 1990s, John Bon Jovi, you know, Avril Lavigne, that sort of, that sort of stuff, right? So grew up, <laughs> grew up in the suburbs of uh, Kuala Lumpur in a place called Wang Samaju at the time. I mean, it was a different language, but uh, I think, what was it? 7.5 kilometers away from the city center. Um, and and my, my, my first 10 years, I think I remember just hanging out with the, uh, you know, the neighborhood boys and, we used to go climbing in the jungle behind the house, exploring the storm drains until my parents uh, put a very quick stop to that. Um, and then teenage years, you know, we, um, well, I stopped going down storm drains, stopped climbing up uh, mountains I started in the jungle, but uh, I started, I don't know, started playing computer games. Uh, I think I went to Wesley Methodist school then. It was a nice little place in the, the center of town. Um, and then on my just shy of my 16th birthday, my dad announced that he had secured an expat position in uh, the UK with a company at the time. Uh, it was known at the time as Orange Telecommunications. And uh, I don't know if, if people listening are aware, but uh, Orange was eventually bought over by EE, a different type of you know telecom- telecommunications company. Not quite sure where it's gone now, but uh, you know that's what it was. Then, um, very sadly, three months into our stay uh, in England, my father passed away of a heart attack uh, whilst playing badminton with me. Um, so that sort of you know, put a bit of wobble on things. And I completed my GCSEs. I went to Reading. So I went to a school called Maiden Early School. Uh, I used to watch you know, proper, you know, proper British life, you know, go to school, trundle through the day after school drink at the solid old park behind school in the playground you know the, the proper things that you know that, 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 a, that a teenager in england would do uh if you go to a comprehensive and uh after my gcses uh we decided to come back to malaysia and i was enrolled in uh garden international school so best two years of my life i think 2005 uh, to, to 2007 made friends for life i think we're still we're still communicating to this day. We still hang out uh, whenever anyone's in KL. And uh, that was it in terms of my, my formative life, you know. Obviously, what, what comes next is university, but maybe, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but maybe before that, you know, you can sort of interject and just uh, yeah. if you have any, any questions or anything. No, so, th- I mean, that sort of, um, I suppose, sort of kind of bounced all over the place from, from KL to the UK and then back to KL again. Um, so, I'm so, obviously, you know, it's, it's been a while, but sorry to hear about um, your father passing away in, in the way that he, he did okay. and, and, um, and you being there at the time as well when it happened. Um, I'm sure that's, you know, shaped you as a person and, and, and the way that you've um, observed life uh, since then. And I think we might touch in, into it later on um, as we go on. Uh-huh. Um, so you were saying the last, was it the last two years of high school and garden school, you made uh, sort of friends for life. Um and, and for mm-hmm. those that are listening, Garden School is um, an international school in, in KL, uh, lots of expats. Um, and so you have 
uh, sort of this similar background to me uh, in the sense I, I grew up in, in Montclair, which is just down the road or up the road. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, in, another international school. So it, it, it's a nice sort of um, melting pot of cultures, of ideas of, you know, um, you, know you, you grow up uh, experiencing everyone else's culture as well, which is, which is really handy, um, especially these days having that global perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so after high school, uh, you know, or sorry, during high school in the last two years, what, what were your interests like? Um, you know, in terms of study, or were you not interested in study? Uh, were you into sports, <laughs> anything like that? Well, look, I think I always loved basketball, and I did make the school team. But I swear, I, I wasn't very good with with you know my my hands and feet. You know, I th- I, I've, I think I had some form of verbal, uh, some muscular dyspraxia or something that was undiagnosed or something. <laughs> but uh, but because as you know, at the time, uh, people in Malaysia aren't very tall, so at the time, I was what six feet. So they just put me underneath the rim and just, you know, just put the ball in, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah, man, Brick city more like, but, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, in KL, KL in 2000, Kuala Lumpur in 2005, 2007, it's very different to, um, to what it is now. Um, And I think it's always a teenager's rite of passage uh, to go clubbing before they're, you know, before they're 18. I think everyone's sort of done it uh, right now as well. Um, so we used to go to a place called Heritage Row, and I'm sure you're very familiar with that place. Yes, right? very familiar. And, and oh, some yes, of us are going to be unfamiliar, a bit hazy as well. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Wake up at home. So how did I get back here? Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it was always seen as a rite of passage. So, you know, what you've done, I've probably done as well. Yeah. Row of shops down there. And um, yeah, we used to go, I don't know, once every couple of months. I never, never was much of a clubbing type of guy, but... Um, so if anyone's listening from Malaysia and you have kids in international school and they're over the age of 15, um, yeah. So if they if they ever say they're going to stay over at someone's house on Fridays or Saturday, uh, they probably are not. So, <laughs> and, and if, if you need confirmation of that, just hire Clement uh, and use oh Atlas to uh, you know get some uh, close protection officers on their way. We'll talk about that later, though. <laughs> um, Child recovery. <laughs> um, so after high school, uh, yeah, what, what, what did you um, get up to? Did you uh, did you go pursue sort of further studies at uni, or what was? What was the uh, mindset like after high school? Okay, so I went to Manchester uh, University or the University of Manchester, as they call it, um, <laughs> for it right. my further education. Because there's two, there's two universities. One is Manchester Metropolitan, and then there's like University of Manchester, um, which you know was an amalgamation of Victoria University and UMIST. But anyway, went to Manchester, did economics, and I always thought that I was going to work in the financial services sector, maybe work in banking, private equity. Uh, you know, three very good years spent in Manchester, getting uh, very drunk, um, attending Nottingham Malaysian Games, um, and uh, yeah, just getting to sort of know the people in in Manchester. I actually worked for a security company named uh, Showsec, and I think if you Google it, like Show Security, if you Google it now you'll find that they're one of the largest event companies uh, in England. You know what's funny? So uh, Showsec, yeah. like the yellow and black uh, outfits. That, yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. So I actually, um, uh, a few months ago, signed up to Showsec, got a job, uh, did, did a oh. few shifts, um, and then uh, obviously started my close protection gig um, you know, shortly after. And then I just haven't, mm-hmm. haven't replied or you know, come up for any gigs. And I got an email saying like, we've, you, your contract's been terminated because you haven't worked, uh, you know, 58 days or whatever the, the threshold is. I'm like, 
oh crap i forgot that i forgot i even worked for you guys <laughs> so they're like oh, it's fine asking for like the uniform back i'm like oh crap yeah i, I should probably i think i still ha- i need to so thank you for reminding me anyway sorry oh so yeah i didn't i did not realize you worked for show set. that's that's cool oh yeah even you're talking about uniform i have the show set uniform back in malaysia man Uh-oh. It's like, <laughs> i I might have accidentally packed it in but it's fine i mean they've taken your 50 quids uh deposit right so i was like exactly. i just said goodbye to that 50 quid i was like whatever right you know nice, nice souvenir uh, nice memento to remember the occasion yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's good good times right manchester city you know blackpool winter gardens manchester evening news arena yeah, yeah. Nice. you know so, so were you doing part-time when you were at uni that's correct yeah yeah i used to spend instead of getting sloshed on friday and saturday nights um i used to work uh you know that sort of stuff like door supervisor stuff okay yeah. um and, and and occasionally if there were no ds positions just work as a steward you know slightly lower pay but um still a good yeah. still a good money, experience money, um, money, money at the end of the day especially as a uni student like um you know you're yeah blowing the money you're, you're putting it in your pocket which is good Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um, so that's that's what i used to do yeah so um economics um and then obviously your intro to the i suppose the, the you know foot, foot into the security sector was um through show doing the ds um mm-hmm. s- sort of sort of shifts um how, how did the economics degree go did you did you sort of um see it all the way through or um was there something else that caught your attention while you were at uni no no yeah i, I completed my degree graduated um and then I decided to come back to Malaysia for maybe the summer. And I decided, look, you know, why don't I try and get, do an internship in a private equity company. Yeah. Um, and, of, you know, the, uh, one of the higher ups in there was quite close to my mom. So uh, we, got, we got that gig. I got that gig. Um, it was nice. People there were really great. And we worked on some very interesting projects. But I obviously can't disclose the projects because, yeah. you know. Um, but then I realized, look, you know, I... I I was looking at people's accounts all day long and I was like, there's got to be more to life than this. You know, looking at someone else's account and trying to see if the company that I'm with wants to buy them over. And I'm like, just sat here getting paid, like, you know, whatever type of salary they're, you know, paying. Yeah. Uh, it's a great company. And I love my time there. I love the people there. Intelligent people learned a lot about mathematics, about financial modeling, that sort of stuff, you know, discounted cash flow, net present value. Yeah. And that sort of helped my business now. So I don't regret it at all. But I just realized that that wasn't the type of life uh, that I wanted for myself. So I decided to then pursue international development uh, for my master's degree. I thought, look, you know, I want to be, I want to travel the world. I want to, most importantly, the work that I do has to have meaning. We need to make people's, I, w- I would like to make people's lives better. So if it's something, for example, working in the United Nations or working in the World Bank, fine, you know, maybe I could do that. Yeah. Did my one year's uh, master's in, in Norwich, uh, University of East Anglia. Yeah. Great experience. Um, only a year or so. During that time, as part of my master's thesis, I decided to intern at uh, a Malaysian company uh, called uh, the Performance Management and Delivery Unit. And they were a unit under the Prime Minister's Department where... Uh, which were focused, which was focused on the economic uh, and government transformation program, which is a ten-year program uh, designed to bring Malaysia to a medium-slash-high-income nation, right? In terms of you know salaries, in terms of institutions. So I enjoyed my time there, and I thought, okay, this is this seems pretty okay, right? What, seems what pretty year, okay. What year was this? 
This was 2011. 2011. Right. Was, was that um, you, you're saying it's a 10 year uh, sort of goal? Was that to do with the whole um, like Malaysia had the vision 2020? Uh, does that fall under the same sort of umbrella? It, it does, uh, but the gov it, it did. I mean, obviously, it's past uh, 2020 now, yeah. but uh, yeah, it, it sort of some of the things that were part of the vision 2020 were then I won't say absorbed, but they tried to make it relevant. Uh, to the government and economic transformation program. Right. Enjoyed my time there. Um, came back to England and uh, was fortunate enough to secure a job at that book printing factory, a book printing factory, right? Um, if you, I, I think it printed like 52% of books uh, in the world, Clay's Limited. So if you have a look at, if you open the book and you look at the description, you should be able to see printed and bound in Great Britain by St. Ives or something, uh, Clay's. Oh, wow, okay. So, I did three years there. Great job, you know, enjoyed, enjoyed people there, you know, enjoyed the company, you know, enjoyed going out uh, to the pub on a Thursday afternoon, nice. plumbing sandwich, a nice pint, come back to the office, you know, great, you know, three years, two years. Yeah, no, three years spent very nicely there. What, what attracted you um, to, to that role? Like, obviously, from the, uh, you know, economics, the um, private equity firm, um, and then doing the, the government work, what, what was the draw to, um, to Clay's... Um, <laughs> printing to be very honest i think at that point in time i think i was still lost in life yeah i just didn't know what to do and i thought maybe staying maybe prolonging my time in england was the best thing for me um but you know come my second year in in the company i started to realize that maybe my real calling was to maybe come back home you know and try and help this country or use my skills and whatever it is to whatever skills I've learned, whatever education I've gained overseas to, to help people here. To bring it back. So I, I, I enrich, you know, the uh, sort of the, the work culture in, in, in Malaysia itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when the time came, I didn't, I didn't renew my visa. I, um, I just applied back to Pamandu again. That's what it's called, performance management delivery unit. Okay. I'll just call it the PM's department, I think. Yeah, so reapply to the PM's department and um, I got the gig. <laughs> so, uh, but instead of, instead, instead of putting me in special projects, which they had put me in during my internship, uh, they put me in crime. Okay, yeah. So, uh, well, I didn't actually do crime, you know, reduction, reduce, <laughs> reducing of crime, right? Crime reduction, not not, not crime perpetuation, right? Here's a balaclava so. and a uh, crowbar. <laughs> Go at it, Clement. <laughs> yeah, we've got, we've got to increase crime and the perception of fear. Let's do that. Um, so, some, some very interest, interesting projects. Uh, I can talk about it now because obviously they've been published yeah. uh, in, in the news, in the mainstream media. So, we were... My, my projects were... Um, Car theft, so that's part of organized crime. Yep. And um, I think one of my first, one of our first projects was to try and catch the person who was like responsible for something like fifty percent of like Hiluxes being stolen in Malaysia. Okay, yeah. Or something like that, right? So uh, we actually got lucky. The Singaporean police picked him up, and we're like, oh, cool, thanks for that. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, we um, we were trying to reduce the demand for Hiluxes and Fortunas. And obviously, if, if people listening are not aware, uh, Toyota Hilux is a pickup truck 
which is very popular in Malaysia and also very popular in the Middle East, where people insurgents mount machine guns on the back of them and drive around the desert shooting other people. I was, was going to say, right. if you want to take over a country, um, you basically have to have a Hilux in your fleet um, or a, yes. like an old Defender or something like that. But definitely a Hilux. Mm-hmm. Strap a machine gun to it, and yeah, you're good to go. You've you, you gone <laughs> that country already. <laughs> it's a yep. Got my technical right here. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it was it was good. I mean, we um, just by catching him, car theft reduced from sixteen thousand seven hundred sixteen thousand seven hundred thirty three to thirteen thousand hundred and three. Okay. And the reason why I remember these figures is because I had to like announce them time and time again. I had to do slides in them and stuff. So, one three one zero seven. So. <laughs> Laundry you know, it was good. Um, yeah, no, pop down to the 40 right now, right? So um, it was good times. It was good times, you know. I uh, I was also uh, involved in, um, I think, what do we call? Yes, combined operations. So we, I felt that KL, um, well, we all felt actually, we all felt that KL was, was getting quite high up there in terms of crime. Uh, people snatch thefts, for example, uh, house breakings, car theft, obviously part of the projects. Um, they were increasing, right, based on the statistics. So it was felt that if we combined, if we joined forces between the agencies, police, immigration, anti-drugs, customs, name all the you know 12 or 13 law enforcement agencies under the home ministry, it was felt that if we had a concerted, targeted effort towards the prevention of crime. So we're talking zero tolerance policing. So anything on the street, you litter, you get fined, you know, you, you know, you serve alcohol to a drunk person, you know, you get fined every single thing, you know, uh, no, no illegal parking, no using uh, kids to sell flowers for you and then taking the money or, or no using, you know, underage baggers in the streets. Yeah. So we did that, you know, we, um, we ran two-week operations, and uh, you don't have to be a scientist or a you know rocket scientist to, to basically infer that crime did fall yeah. by about 30 percent. I think it was, um, and it was nice. You know, we kept going at this uh, months at a time. So we we do it for two weeks, and we rest for two months, and obviously then crime start going up. And we do it again, rest for two weeks, uh, rest for two months, and keep doing it again. It's just a shame that it didn't carry on after I left. I think. Um, I think it would have been nice. Yeah, I think you know, with that sort of uh, stuff, when you get like the multi-agency work, um, you know, and, and you're targeting as hard as you would have in in those years, um, to keep the tempo going takes, you know, really good leadership as well. Um, like just to keep everyone on the same page and ticking along, uh, and 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 you know, yeah, basically, um, c- continuously focusing and, and and also moving the goalposts in terms of realigning your goals. So like you know, once you meet your targets to not keep the same sort of targets to, to keep moving further and further. But um, mm-hmm. would you say that the, the leadership maybe around the time that you left, had that changed or um, uh, was it, was it just uh, something that just fizzled out because of complacency? What, what were your thoughts on that? My unit? Fine. Look, you know, nothing, nothing but good things to say about it, about them. You know, my, the PM department, we were, we were fine. Everybody understood the mission. We had discipline of action. We knew but very sadly, uh, the unit was disbanded. It no longer became. It was no longer a unit uh, attached to the prime minister's department right. in 2018, yeah. when elections happened, and I think Najib was deposed then. So you know all the good work that we had done. Uh, very very sad to say, 
I believe has has dissolved, which is sad, but no regrets. I think I like to think that what we did or what I did had meaning to someone that we changed someone's life. I mean, like you were saying, like that reduction in, in, you know, um, motor vehicle thefts and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, on the outside, you think of it as a, Oh, it's just, it's just a bit of property. Like, you know, a car is a car. It has no, you, you didn't hurt anyone but it's like well no psychologically like victims go through a lot there's a whole you know spectrum of, of emotions that you go through like mm-hmm. that car was stolen from your house that's your house then that you don't feel safe in um you mm-hmm. know so there's a wide gamut of emotions that um, a victim goes through whether it's just as simple as you know a car being stolen. I, I say simple but whether it's property or whether it's um an assault yeah. style um, offense um you, you know having yeah. that reduction in crime uh, is 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 quite amazing, but and also on the on the wider scale of things, you know, motor vehicle crime, if if it's in an organized crime setting, is only one arm of that operation. So you disrupting mm-hmm. that section might make them, you know, do stupid things in other assets of their um, or other facets of their organization. Um, you know, they start making mistakes, they start slipping up. Um, that's another mm-hmm. avenue of inquiry that you can go down to to you know arrest them or, or do more um, operations or surveillance on <laughs> individuals um, disrupt the supply chain basically <laughs> exactly right yeah. um just shake things up a bit um with so malaysia for and for those of you who maybe aren't as uh, geographically inclined um malaysia sits in southeast asia it's uh, between uh basically thailand and singapore um you mentioned mm-hmm. before that the singaporean authorities had caught that um the uh the the, the kingpin of car theft yeah, yeah. The, king, the kingpin <laughs> of the hiluxes which is a pretty cool uh, name really um <laughs> what was the uh i suppose intel sharing or gathering in that region did you have a lot of relationships built with singapore and thailand with thailand yes singapore i'm not that sure i never i think there was someone else in charge of that okay. but uh, they must have shared the intelligence or we we must have shared the intelligence to them yeah. because they were on a lookout uh, for him and okay. they got him when he was they got him when he was traveling uh through the ica checkpoints in singapore yeah gotcha and also like i mean another you know? i suppose i've mentioned thailand as well it was i think thailand still produces like the most uh sort of toyota, like, they have a massive toyota factory um churning out sort of hiluxes and and all sorts of and other pickup trucks like you know the ranger and all that sort of stuff um yes i'd imagine that border or th- that sort of area would be quite um of a of a hotbed for especially somebody stealing hiluxes or pickup trucks yeah yeah it's uh i think the police's favorite terms were this is a porous border yeah, yeah. it's what they uh it's what they love saying i think someone someone must have said it during a conference or something but they love that word right porous, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, it, it was yeah and because it's a hilux as well it's a four by four it'll just, just do whatever you want to do Exactly. Right, it'll yeah. traverse it'll traverse territory. It don't really matter where whether it's a, you know, whether it's a small hill, whether it's a stream wall, whatever. You're not stealing Mercedeses. You're stealing Hiluxes, exactly. and these things can really go right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but I, I think the border is much wider compared to Singapore and Malaysia. It's just two causeways, I think, between yeah. Singapore and Malaysia or something like that, right? So, uh, in, in Thailand, it's an entire it's an entire land border. It's very difficult to sort of. And force and police. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. no, so that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, were you, you were, how long were you that unit for? 20, end of 2013 to 2016. So, okay, about two cool. and a half years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and then what was the move after? Like, did, did, was that, did, did it reignite sort of that purpose? You, you're saying before this role, you're still 
you know, in that sort of finding out phase and feeling out what was out mm -hmm. there, um, did this embolden you to a specific career path or a specific, you know, purpose? Well, I think I've always said to myself, what we, what we do always has to have meaning. Yeah. And uh, it just so happened that I felt that what we did with the government had meaning to someone. Yeah. And that was fine. But, you know, three years on, contract was three, two plus one, three years. So I thought, look, maybe, maybe it's time to move on. I mean, I've done enough for my country. You know, I had a, had a great time, right? But um, maybe, it's something to, maybe it's time for me to sort of do something for myself. And, and still benefit people around. So, you know, I, I asked around, I thought, you know, what, what, sort of, what sort of gaps in the market are there? I, saw, I, I thought maybe we could, I could start up a security company and just do security guarding, yeah. all right, of that, you know, that sort of, that sort of industry. Uh, but then I realized that the security guarding industry in Malaysia is based on cost cutting and the clients basically don't, they can't tell the difference between what is good and what is bad. Sure. And they're only hiring security guards because uh, they're legislated to do so, right? So I thought, okay, maybe maybe not security guarding then. What, what else can we do? Uh, then one of my friends actually suggested, why don't you just do close protection? And I was like, close protection, what's that? Oh, you just mean bodyguarding? He's like, yeah, bodyguarding, but, 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 you know, don't use that word. It's to, you know, it's, it, just, it just denigrates, it denigrates the individual, close protection. So, okay, so... I had a look at that and I went, ah, asked around and I discovered that, yes, there was a gap in the market, but I wasn't sure how big. Okay, because every single bodyguard that I interviewed, they seemed to think that because they had sort of experience in police or, you know, traffic police or, I don't know, uh, patrol or whatever, right? Or perhaps they were in a special unit or just because they had military experience. Uh, it automatically made them a good close protection officer. Yeah. Right. So, and when you come into the industry, the private sector with that sort of attitude, close protection is a service, is a service industry. Okay? I, I think many people don't sort of realize that. Okay. They'll say, oh, I can't do this because of this. But really it's just like consulting, you know, it's all about the person. It's not about the project at all. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there, you, there's so many soft skills that you probably utilize more than your, you know, hard skills. Like especially, you know, I'm in the UK at the moment, so mm -hmm. I'm not really going to have access to a firearm and, and utilize my mm -hmm. tactical skills in in that realm. Um, but what mm -hmm. I will use is the gift of the gab. Um, you know, uh, empathizing with with my principal or my client. Um, you know, speaking to various stakeholders that you know might present themselves throughout the day. You know, that that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Planning this. I think you're right when, or, or your friend is right when, you know, when they you say close protection, somebody says, oh, bodyguard. It's like, well, it's, yes, that is one aspect. Of, of <laughs> Not, quite. Not quite. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so many, yeah. there's so many things, uh, you know, like risk management, route planning, surveillance, mm -hmm. counters, like this, just, it's endless really. And um, for myself, just, just really quickly, like that was my draw after policing was I wanted something <laughs> where I could utilize the skill sets that I'd learned from policing. Um, but, but also I didn't, uh, want to just you know, be in an office uh, setting and so close protection was like yeah perfect checks the boxes um, there's so many avenues that you can go down there's different routes that you can go down in within close protection um, and yeah, it's been pretty good so far um, so mm -hmm. that gap and and as you mentioned previously as well so you know in in Malaysia in a lot of sort of Southeast Asian countries really like you know you have a lot of high-end um, <laughs> even high-end but you have a lot of apartments a lot of condominium living most condominiums have security 
Um, you go to shopping mm-hmm. centers, most, you know, there, there's, there's a presence of security there, but like you said, you're just, it's, it's more of a tick in the box uh, for insurance purposes or legislation um, that you're hiring, you know, and, and there's no insult to the people who are doing it, but like um, sort of, I don't want to say the word low quality, but you're, you're, you're hiring sort of just basic, um, you know, overt, uh, you know, minimal training uh, individuals who are just there in a uniform just to deter. Um, but, you know, when, when things actually happen or, or in terms of planning, um, they're probably not suited for those, you know, for the role of a close protection officer operative. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's really not. Yeah. So look, they're great guards, right? It's fine. But you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't judge you, you know, you're a fish on its ability to climb a tree. There's completely different skill sets, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is fine. Yeah. Right. I just felt that I didn't want to enter into the market of low margins and cost cutting and yeah. doing all sorts of stuff. And when that sort of thing happens, when, when clients don't want to pay, don't don't want to pay more than what one pound fifty an hour to the security company. Yeah, um, it leads to stuff like worker exploitation, you know, denigrating work conditions, withholding of passports, that sort of stuff. So, it's not really a route I wanted to go down, and and I knew that if I'd gone down that route, I would always, I I would I cannot stand or bear the fact that other people treat other human beings you know, this way. So I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, close protection. Friends like, yeah, try, try having a look at that. So I, I did. I spoke to a couple of people I knew who were affluent and they were like, yeah. So what, what, what would you, I asked them, what would you want in a, in a body? I, cause obviously they, they wouldn't understand what a CPO was. So I said, look, you know, we currently hire in bodyguards. Yeah. So what's your pet peeve when it comes to uh, bodyguarding or your bodyguards? And it may surprise some people, not you definitely, but uh, it may surprise some people, but that their response was not, I want them to be good at mixed martial arts or I want them to be able to shoot a fly off someone's, I don't know, someone's finger or something, right? It was like, look, you know, sometimes I wish my guys had a bit more tact when dealing with other people. Yeah. Sometimes I wish that they would use lateral thinking, you know, critically think, you know, they just don't have any forward planning. Right. So if someone like, I was like, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Said, Look, you know, for example, I wanted to meet one of my business rivals to see what we could do to discuss. Oh, yeah, great, great. Yeah. What happened then? So I spoke to my bodyguard and he went, yeah, okay. Um, he didn't ask for location. He didn't, you know, he didn't ask exactly who I was meeting. You know, yeah. all he knew was, okay, Starbucks at, I don't know what the hell it was. Right. But it was some, some, some shopping complex. Right. And then, and then my friend was uh, my friend was like, hey, look, you know, um, are you not going to like maybe case, you know, case to joint before we go there? I mean, like this, this guy doesn't like me, man. He like he's made like physical threats to me in the past. Right. Yeah. You're not going to be there first, uh, you know, to find out. There's like three of you, man. So, you know, that's when he realized actually that that sort of like lateral thinking doesn't really exist uh, at the moment. Yeah. Um, in, in at that moment, in that point in time, those, you know, the 2016 um, in, in the CP industry. So, you know, that's when he was like, yeah, you know, if, if you could think of a way to sort of make that better, I'd be all ears. Yeah, nice. So, yeah, so that's why I was like, look, you know, why, why, don't we, why don't we start by training people first before deploying? You know, I love to say, oh, we are a bodyguarding agency, we deploy bodyguards, but without proper training, there's really no point in saying that we're special. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, was what, that was what led to 
to me seeking the uh, the SIA accreditation by by Highfield. So yeah, and, that's and uh, just, I feel just to track back a bit. Um, so Atlas is the name of your company. Um, mm-hmm. what was the um, thinking behind Atlas? Uh, like just the concept um, in terms of the name and the branding. Well, Atlas was a Greek god who held the world up by uh, by his shoulders. Yeah. Right. So, um, so we felt that, and obviously Kronos and all of that sort of. St- I'm not going to go into Greek mythology. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, Greek <laughs> mythology. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but really, we were like, look, you know, we really want to uplift the standards of of uh, close protection in 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 the region. Yeah. I want to, I want to make it so that when someone sees someone else's bodyguards, or when they think of the word close protection, or they think of whatever it is, or executive protection, they don't see it, they don't think of a man who is maybe washed out ex-police, dressed in some ridiculous uniform, doesn't speak a word of English, smokes like a chimney, yeah. that sort of stuff, right? I wanted to move away from that sort of perception, yeah. from an industry which is seen as being very menial, you know, low-skilled, and have other people being treated like crap, basically. So that, that was my mission. Yeah. And I felt that training uh, at the time would be able to, to fulfill that. So I did, you know, Atlas was a training company for, I think, a good year and a half yeah. until one of my friends who works for a very large company, a British, you might have heard of it, but I'm not going to mention the name, a huge British company that services contracts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Okay, yeah. And Southeast, you know, and, and Nicaragua, amongst other places. I was like, look, you know, hey, uh, we noticed that you have um, high field accreditation for to conduct the SIA course. That's great. But do you have any people who are actually qualified? And I was like, mm, I'm glad you asked. So, you know, back then, before then, we our pipeline was incomplete. We had trained people and we had a huge, good bunch of graduates. But no one in Malaysia was recognizing their talents because why would they know any better? Yeah. Right? You know, if, if you're, you know, if you're a fish and someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, there's a whole new world out on land, right? You don't know what to expect, right? Sure. If I go out, I'm going to die, right? So what, what, why should I, you know, do that, right? Or so we, I was always, you know, it was, I was always puzzling about that, ruminating and wondering, look, you know, what, how can we complete the pipeline? And uh, finally, my friend reached out and he said, look, you know, you've, you've got operatives. Great. I've got a job for you. <laughs> so nice. that began our relationship with, uh, with that company. And uh, we did some very good work for them, you know, over the next few years yeah. uh, till the pandemic. And um, yeah. And because I'd like to think that we do good work, uh, word of mouth spreads and, and more people started coming for our CP services, basically. Um, And, um, um, you you know, you mentioned uh, before the high field accreditation and the SIA. So just just for those um, who might not be aware, um, Mm. uh, why why those are the British sort of um, standards um, for, you know, in obtaining your security licenses, you have to go through the SIA. Um, Why the British model? Was that because you were sort of familiar with it, uh, you know, through living uh, in the UK and having that UK connection? Um, or in terms of sort of when you looked at different standards around the world, was the British is the British model sort of the the one to uh, I guess with the highest esteem maybe? Well, um, we are partly right there. Yes, of course, I'm more familiar with the SIA system, having been through a, a DS 
a DS qualification. So I'm well aware of what compliance is, or compliance requirements are in the United Kingdom. But the second thing is I actually did a bit of research as in, into, into which which sort of accreditation we should go for. I looked at the US and I looked at Australia and I looked at UK, Hong Kong, Singapore. And what I found was that in Australia, your security qualification is only recognized in the state itself. Yeah. Right? CPP 301 something, whatever, whatever it was, right? I can't remember the uh, exact terms. Yeah. It's only recognized in the state itself. When you go to a different state, you need to take another qualification which is recognized by that state. And in the United States, it's ex- almost exactly the same. Sure. State quali- There's no federal qualification. Unless you've been trained by the DSS or something, or what is secret service or whatever, right? But yeah. you know, how many individuals can proclaim that they've been lucky enough or fortunate enough to, you know, to be part of that team? Exactly. And they so, generally just stay in the States anyways. You know, it's such a big market there that there's no real you know, need to venture out really. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And if you look at British companies in, in you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, they'll always ask for an SIA qualification because they need to comply to British, to British law, right? So we just realized, look, you know, if we train people in this and we qualify them according to the same standards as the UK, I'm not saying it's like Superman standard, right? Both you and I know that it's a rudimentary standard. It is the... One of my friends compared it. He actually compared it to a... When you take your driving you take your driving lessons, right? That doesn't make you a an expert driver. It doesn't make you a Jack Brabham or Michael Schumacher, bless his soul, right? Yeah. You know, it makes it it makes you into a competent driver. But yeah. then after that, you learn everything via experience and via mentorship. So I'd like to think of the SIA. No, it's okay. Sorry. I'd like to think of the SIA as that sort of, you know, that sort of stepping stone into the CP, into the CP world. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly, I mean, the stepping stone is the right word. Like it, it gives you that opportunity to, you know, apply for jobs um, that you wouldn't have had access to if you didn't have a license. And then from there, you mm-hmm. know, you learn on the job and through your reps, basically. Um, yes. what, um, what's the, you know, at this stage, had you ever owned a business or, um, or run a business? Oh. No. So this is brand new to you. What's your mindset mm. like in terms of that, this sort of entrepreneurial drive that you, um, that you now have? Look, when I first started, I hadn't a clue as to how to do business. I always thought that, you know, the business was down to the project, yeah. not the person. Right. So I think because of that, the way I approached things was a was not what I would do now. I was a bit, I was very harsh. I was coarse, you know. I went in there with the mindset that, oh, these people don't know what they're doing. I'm here to tell them, right? Yeah. right? That's not, uh, and obviously rub people up the wrong way, uh, Look, it's been a couple of years now. It's been five years now. So I've just learned that, look, you know, you getting into an argument with someone isn't going to make the buy from you. It's, it's very, very simple, yeah. right? That's, uh, that's the main lesson that I've learned, you know, empathy. Uh, and the second lesson I've learned is um, hire for hard skills and fire for soft skills. Okay, yeah. Basically, does that make any sense? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to elaborate further. Everyone... Well, not wouldn't say everyone, but most people who apply will have some form of hard skills training, military, police, whatever. Okay. But what really sets them out is their soft skills. Can they work well with people? Are they coming in with a chip on their shoulder with a, you know, I'm going to come in and I'm going to tell you what to do and I don't want to learn anything new and you can't survive without me type of attitude. Right. So that's, um, that's a very harsh lesson that I've learned. 
So right now I'm hiring, I hire for attitude yeah. rather than hard skills. Um, not that, not to say hard skills aren't important, but the very pinnacle of where we want, like that, that tipping point of whether I hire you or not will be attitude. That's uh, that's most important lesson uh, that I've learned. Oh, sorry, I, I realized I didn't answer your question about why we chose the SIA. The SIA is the only federally recognized qualification by a country. Okay. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, oh, and no and yeah. There, then. Yeah, we follow very closely by the French's CNAPs, but I don't speak French, so <laughs> yeah, you know. So that's and, and obviously uh, nice is having that connection to the UK as well. That's um, you know, you've already built up over the years. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's true that's true man in terms of uh yeah so no going back to the hard and soft skills are like yeah such relevant relevant points um i think you know it's that when you let's say you're in the military or something you know you, you come up to a certain rank you've built uh you know your career and then you leave and you're on civvy street um n- none of that really you know there's this maybe certain respect that you you give to that person but ultimately you're just another person now. And um, I think for a lot of people coming from the backgrounds like policing and military, that's very hard to let go of mainly, mm-hmm. you know, you've been institutionalized um, if, if you've, if you had a long career. Um, and so like getting rid of that mentality is, uh, you know, it's very difficult. Uh, and then the soft skills, you know, there's, there's certain verbiage, there's certain um, the, the vernacular is very different when you're in the police and, and military that, you know, is, is in some circumstances when you go to the private sector could warrant like a trip to the HR off the department, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think for, it, it is a hard transition for a lot of folk, but like you said, yeah, like hard skills are important, but at the end of the day uh, in this industry, you're working with people, uh, you know, there's, there's no, it's very rare that you have a one man, you know, CP loan operative. Like there's usually, uh, you know, if, if, if it's a company hiring, there's going to be an HR department. There's going to be, uh, admin there's going to be uh you know uh, investigators p- people who, who don't have that hard skill background that you have to get along with uh maybe not necessarily get along with but you have to work with in order to achieve your desired goals and outcomes so um yeah i, I completely 100 percent back you and, and can relate to that uh mentality of hard skills and soft skills there yeah um, i mean look I, I i faced it myself when i came out of the government i'm like oh okay why aren't, why aren't people talking to me anymore yeah like yeah yeah that's when i came to realize they didn't it sounds really harsh to say did they didn't respect me as a person rather they respected my position within the government right if that makes any sense yeah so that's brought about some humility as well you know you were only in a position of so-called power it wasn't even power i was a you know as a junior analyst right <laughs> not really anything to shout about but you know when you're in that sort of position, remember it's only temporary and that yeah. human beings are human beings yeah. and you, to always be humble. Exactly. You're important in the roles that you're in until those projects and those roles are, are finished, you know, and then you're back to kind of like back to square one, really with, with, um, with new things uh, in, in the horizon. Um, mm-hmm. So with the accreditation process, is, is that difficult to obtain? Um, you know, I'm, I have no oh, idea man. what it would be like. <laughs> I would imagine difficult though seeing as you know you're in malaysia highfield and the sia are in the uk um in terms of quality control and all that sort of stuff how how, how does the accreditation process work oh yes wow yeah it's you're right it was it took me what nearly a year and a half to get accreditation yeah well, okay. so we uh you know we, we started atlas in 2016 and we got our accreditation what 
September 2017. Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. Right. It it took some time, and it really took some time for us to you know liaise with the high commission, uh, find the right people to do stuff. You know, bring them in, um, and um, you know, what what the uh, what's the SI what what Highfield does is it doesn't actually send internal people over. I don't think it can. It hires people called uh, EQAs, okay. external quality assessors. Right, that's uh, you know, they come in to uh, to do stuff, right? Yeah. So to evaluate your company based on its ability to to actually run the course, right? So we had to pay for their flights, pay for their whatever it was, right, to come and have a look at our trading center and a whole bunch of paper we had to fill, yeah. and just because we had fulfilled the paperwork, it didn't mean that we were approved. You know, there's still a lot of politicking behind the scenes. Sure. So it took some time, but we, we eventually got it. Um, and I'm grateful, right? We are one of the only companies who are based in the region to actually have this accreditation. Yeah, as, no, as a matter of fact, if you, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, what drew me to, to you guys was when I tracked in, you know, close protection, uh, Malaysia and or, you know, security Malaysia. Um, there, there, there were a few, I'm trying to think now, it was a year ago, um, a few websites, but then, Yours, I think, was top listed on on uh, on Google. Clicked into it and then just saw, yeah, all the certifications that you had that the other companies didn't have. Um, the, the professionalism was just there from the get go. Uh, and then after speaking to you, I was like, oh wow, this is. Um, I, I didn't, you know, myself as a Malaysian, didn't even realize that there was a, a company like yours in Malaysia. So that was to me surprising and and kind of a breath of fresh air, to be honest. So. Um, yeah. Glad to hear it. Love to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And you know, like I said, I can't wait to get back home just to catch up with you in person finally. But um, we, we were discussing before about, you know, you were speaking to um, some of your affluent friends and, um, you know, and I suppose now that you, you, you've got this company, you know, established, raring to go, uh, and then the pandemic's hit, obviously, but let's say pre pre-COVID, it, was it difficult to convince, you know, in terms of get, getting contracts and stuff where you have that mindset, like you were mentioning before, um, of a tick in the box security guard um, to, you know, cover my business uh, or, or even myself or my family in terms of like having a guard at, at you know, a house, let's say. Because um, the way that I look at security um, from like maybe that sort of bean counting economical aspect is it's almost like a, untangible return of investment um like if nothing goes wrong mm-hmm. and you see that nothing's really happening or going wrong you know you as a client or the principal go what am i even paying top dollar for when there's nothing happening but you know in in our eyes as the operators or the business owners of, of like security companies you go mm-hmm. well maybe nothing's going wrong because we're mitigating that risk by you know pl- planning you know route planning uh you know route selection um also surveillance counter surveillance all sorts of stuff um that's happening mm-hmm. in the background and even like overt presence let's say that deters uh any opportunistic sort of crimes how mm-hmm. do you sell that because and that's always been sort of my my main question is uh you know how, how do you is there a way that you can prove uh you know the tangibility of that re- return of investment for the principal of the client well look someone someone actually tried to it's quite funny. I was having a conversation with uh, one of the guys in the industry and he was like, look, you know, it's like trying to sell uh, frost giant extermination services, right? <laughs> I, I kill frost giants. Okay, well, I don't believe you. Well, do you see any frost giants around then? <laughs> 
right? So uh, that's sort of like it was quite funny. A, a good, a good humorous take on yeah. that. But um, look, I, I think um, the most challenging bit is when we're petitioning, when we're pitching to the client. Yeah. Right. When nothing has happened yet. Right. Yeah. And they'll go, "Why do I need this?" Um, and it, it was a bit difficult at the start because we actually went around trying to peddle our services and going to admit that was a pretty tough time. Yeah. Uh, but I think we're at a stage now where people know of us in the industry, so we don't really have to go hunting for clients. They'll sure. come to us. Yeah. And if people, when people come to us, they're pretty certain as to what they want. So, um, but of course, you know, to keep them looped in, to keep, you know, carrot and stick, to give them a carrot, uh, we provide them daily if, if they require it or mostly weekly reports yeah. on based on what has happened during the week. So we, oh, strength, I would say. Oh, strength, something that makes it stand out from the market is our meticulousness, if that's even a word, yeah. uh, to paperwork. Yeah, so every detail. single thing, yes, attention to detail, everything is taken down. For example, root reports. Hey, you want to see a reconnaissance report? Here we go. Here, this is what we noticed. Okay, these are the evasive. For example, we drive, you know, traveling in a car. We're driving you from what A to B, and look, you know, we may have picked up in a, you know, a tail, but we're not going to tell you that. We we'll just no. take a couple of turnings and then you know see if we can detect it, right? So at the end of the day, that gets emailed to to the client, and then then they start to understand what we do and why we do it. Yeah. Um, we just we just came off an operation as well, and a client was like, oh, you know. Uh, the client's lawyer actually said, oh, you know, why is there such a need for all these planning? Yeah. Surely you just turn up and then do stuff. And I'm like, well, no, we don't. That's not what we do. If you want to do that, you can hire any of the 700 security companies that exist in Malaysia and watch them boob it up, right? Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, um, there's a reason why we do what we do. And something happened, right? And because of that, the lawyer was then, oh, yeah, now I understand why you do what you do. Yeah. And I said, like, yeah, look, you know, that's... That's why we do what we do. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. It's like, you, you, know? you want to make it as seamless as possible. And, and um, you know, basically, like you said, for the, that, the client or the principal to not even know anything's happening in the background. But like when I come off some shifts um, and, and, you know, mm-hmm. working in London, so it's not really you know, that high, that th- sort of the, yeah, the high threat environment, but I'll come back after the shift and like, just knackered like just so tired and that's just you know from constant risk assessments like you know just just mm. scanning everything really like it is it all adds up and then at the end of the day you, you do feel exhausted and i, I think um sometimes yeah, people just don't really understand that because you know and, and they shouldn't because you should just be able to live your life and walk around as normal yeah. but but yeah. um i think with with sort of our backgrounds you, you know that there's there's other sort of underlying um things happening in society that um like we pay attention to but you know not necessarily everyone does um yes so you, you're saying obviously those i did not realize that as well with those in, uh, intel reports i guess if you want to call it that um or information reports um mm-hmm. i was gonna say how do you keep your standards high but i suppose if you're constantly um you know providing that sort of information to a to a high level um th- that's a good way to you know to mitigate complacency um, are there any, are any other tools that you use to sort of uh, keep your standards high um, in, in that regard? I think CPD is very important. Yep. And uh, whenever we, it's so important actually to ensure that skills fade doesn't occur. And uh, whenever we embark on a contract, we, I always put in CPD days. Okay. 
Yeah. I tell the client there there will be some days where we will be shorthanded, and this is this is why basically yeah. we need to keep our guys constantly on the ball. Yeah, because it's dangerous if we don't. Eight out of ten clients will go. Yeah, no problem. Fine. Right. A couple of them will go. Why am I paying for this? And we'll go. You're not paying for it at all. We're just telling you on a few days, you'll be short staffed. Yeah. Unless you'd rather us make you pay for the training. Yeah. At which point they usually go, hmm, carry on. So um, it's a fickle thing, really, you know, dealing with clients. You know, it's just uh, different clients have different expectations. And it's more about, uh, like we were discussing earlier, soft skills. Yeah. Being able to deal Managing with people in that way. And, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the CPD, um, uh, you know, continuous personal development, that's something I think is so important and so underrated. Um, and, but, but also so easy to um, to achieve. Like, you know, I think a lot of people see that and they think, oh, it's just another hassle that I have to do to maintain my skills. And like, you know, um, I have to go book into this course. So I have to, whatever it may be, when it could be just as simple as reading a book, uh, just to broaden your horizons of different ways to think, you know, like, um, obviously, that that is that makes sense to your industry, I think, obviously, is the, is the mm-hmm. main main factor. But it's, you don't necessarily... I think people who, who discredit it, like you don't necessarily have to be paying to do it or like you know, spending big amounts of money to do it. It's just, it's just a matter of sitting no, down for an, for an hour a week or an hour, whatever it may be just to carve out some time. So you can look at what you're lacking as a professional and then, you know, try to bolster up those aspects. Like um, I, I think it's as simple as that. Um, I don't know if, if you're in agreement there or not, but. Yeah, yeah. A- anything to reading a book. But obviously, once we have CPT dates, it's it's more of like, okay, you know, rent a car, make sure everyone is like hot in their drills and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that you know, but that happens, you know, not very free, not, not every week or every month, right? Yeah. It's every three, every quarter, I think we, we get the team together uh, and everyone has to come, right? So um, it's fine. But obviously, I, I, you know, I'm quite an avid reader. I've got... <laughs> I read quite a bit. So uh, once I'm done with my books, I usually leave them in the office so my own team can pick them up. And um, you know, I'm, I'm quite hard on that, actually. I'm like, you need to read. And I'm going to ask you questions about what you've read. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 if you, so people are like, well, hang on a second. Is this a CP firm? What, what is this? Is it a classroom? What? You're running a school or something, you know? Uh, but I do think, I, I think it separates sort of the, the guys and girls who are just you know, sort of trudging along day to day, sort of developing bad habits and not checking themselves to the professionals who, you know, who are continuously uh, upping their game. Um, you know, if, if you think about like my background with the policing, your general duties police, you know, you have a biannual shoot where you spend, you know, a day and it's not even a full day of shooting paper targets. And then, you know, the higher up you go into specializations, they're doing daily or, you know, at least weekly reps in the range, developing their skills. And, and there's obviously going to be a huge, uh, you know, gap of skills in, in between those two, um, those two police officers. Um, but it's that continuous personal development that, that really, you know, you, you really hone in your fine skills and then you, you know, brush up on your skills that you're lacking. Um, so it's, it's I agree completely. Yeah, re- really nice to hear that, that um, that's something that you are, um, you know, heavily emphasized with, with your operators. Um, in terms of, so you're obviously Atlas now very established um, in the region. Uh, have you noticed now that you've sort of, I suppose, plugged up this this gap in the market, um, 
that there's competition now like do, do you have any competitors who are who have gone oh wow we, we uh we see what you know you guys have done and let's try to piggyback on that sort of you know, mentality um, i'm not sure how to respond to that because yes i mean i'm sure after i submitted a white paper to the government extolling the virtues of close protection and that sort of stuff uh, i started seeing the word close protection appear more frequently and i was quite pleased uh, to see that i was ah, okay cool um and you'll get people who have a certificate that says close protection. I just interviewed a bloke last week and he said, ah, you know, I've got like close protection. Uh, and I said, great. So you wouldn't mind if I asked you what concentric security is <laughs> or, you know, yeah. what is a Palms approach in conflict management? Because um, he said, oh yeah, you know, it's uh, it's UK, it's UK trained. I'm, I'm UK trained. I'm like, oh great. Okay. So you wouldn't mind, <laughs> but obviously he couldn't. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, simple, simple skills, right? Um and he couldn't. And I was like, okay, so, so what I'm seeing is people are labeling training as close protection, but as to whether it's truly indicative of what a CPO should be doing. Yeah. And obviously, then you can turn around and say to me, what is a true indication of what CP is? Yeah. Right? Uh, remains to be seen. Yeah. I, I don't proclaim myself to be the expert in close protection. You know, as a matter of fact, I, I rarely even get deployed. Right? It's my guys who do it this time. I can't. I can't be deployed anymore. I think I'll probably get burnt if, uh, yeah, if someone sees exactly. me. But, um, well, but uh, you know, yeah, I'm, since I'm, you were uh, on the uh, Tatler uh, magazine, oh my, uh, oh my article, goodness! I'll, okay. I'll bring that up in a second. Uh, okay. I, I asked about the competition because um, mainly because in the UK it's like it's almost oversaturated in terms of providers and companies. There's just you, you, you throw a rock in any direction, you'll hit somebody with a CP license or a SIA license of some sort. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I just figured that wasn't the case so much for Malaysia, just because um, the, you know, the, the man guarding that had existed prior to Atlas will always be there because, you know, like I, we were saying before, not everyone wants to spend the money. Um, and then, but, but certainly, yeah, like your, your sort of, I don't know what the word would be like, maybe more bespoke style of protection um, is, yeah, it's, uh, I, I certainly haven't seen anything, and I'm, I'm constantly on LinkedIn on, you know, on different websites and stuff, just, just having a look at what the global CP sort of markets like. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think Atlas is sort of either the only one or like head and shoulders, certainly above any competition you might have. So, um, well, I mean, certainly in the region. Yeah. Certainly in the region, I, I can quite safely say within the region, but you know, within the world, throughout the world, maybe not. Right. I mean, there's always out, there's always someone out there that's going to be better than you, and yeah. that's okay. You know, it just it just compels us and exalts us, exalts us to get better. And, and it's know. also like it's like really, I, mean, I suppose, with your economic background, it's just, it's just what, what the market wants. If if um, you know, the, the market is obviously much larger in the UK and much more, um, let's say, maybe diversified uh, compared to Malaysia, which is still you know a relatively new country. There's a lot of wealth, obviously, um, but smaller sort of market new newer country um but that region is certainly booming and um you know i think covid's maybe put a bit of a a damper in in the progress but uh it's oh, say it's that again on an upward <laughs> trend that's for sure um yeah so on covid um how has it affected your it sounds like a generic sort of question but how is, you know i asked what your mindset was like the starting of Atlas, um, you know, there's a lot of trials and tribulations, getting your accreditation, getting people on board. Uh, mm-hmm. It's gone smoothly. And then bam, COVID hits. What's your mindset like, you know, sort of now um, as we're hopefully getting to some sort of normalcy again, especially in Malaysia. 
during COVID, I'm not going to lie. It's, it was bad, man. We, uh, you know, pay cuts all around. I had to cut. I just didn't take any salary for a year, basically. Uh, well, six months. But yeah, you know, it's just uh, it's bad for us because, you know, obviously the protection industry is very, it's, it's focused around people traveling from point A to point B. Yeah. And if everyone is confined at point A, confined to Zoom, confined to Google Meets, not traveling overseas, yeah. naturally contracts start to dry up or they start to get pushed. Sure. So last two years, pretty bad for us, but um, we were okay now. I think we, we got a couple of good contracts um, servicing right now. And uh, yeah, that's, you know, we'll see what happens in 2022. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty bullish that it'll, uh, it'll recover to our pre-COVID times. I think there's going to be an itch of people wanting to, you know, start basically going back to what the world was like before COVID and wanting to up the travel and, uh, you know, everyone's been cooped up long enough that it's only natural for people just to want to get out there again. Um, I know obviously certain industries will might go transition to. I know I think Deloitte was one of those companies that said they're happy for their employees to you know work from home sort of indefinitely. I suppose, um, mm-hmm. but there's going to be you know all sorts of people who who crave that social setting to meet people and, and all that sort of stuff so I, yeah i agree with you that i think 2022 hopefully will be the year that we get back to some sort of normal um, one can only hope my friend yeah. like i say i'm quite ha- i'm quite happy for my staff to work from home but yeah. you know obviously the industry is very how can you, i'm cp officer i'm going to work from home yeah <laughs> what's that supposed to mean right so yeah, exactly um so, and, and on that so i know cp isn't only like the only thing that you guys do so um, I know we've, we've talked about a lot about CP mainly because I have that interest in it and, and the background and everything, but um, in terms of diversity that they're diversifying your, your product, your brand, I know Atlas do a lot of um, work with due diligence um, uh, from, from my perspective and from speaking to other people as well. I think every security firm that you know, might have started doing man security, that sort of um, manpower based security will, will ultimately go into some sort of, you know, investigations, due diligence, because the overheads would be, you know, quite low. You can take a lot of volume on without having to have the manpower resources physically to, to provide for it. Um, mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. something that um, you found, you know, as your CP sort of stuff, maybe slowed down a bit? Did you see the other sort of things that um, Atlas has done, you know, upping in terms of yeah. uh, productivity and, and, and workflow? Yeah, we, we actually had to, we had to pivot during the pandemic era, yeah, you know, can't do close protection. So we did the next best thing that we were good at, which was risk management. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, given, given my background in the government and, and, you know, obviously some experience in the financial services sector and my degree. So it was quite natural for us to then transition into doing site assessments, into, um, into planning people's security apparatus, physical security, Sure. That sort of stuff. Uh, and as you said, due diligence, it's really quite easy to find information about someone in this country. Um, so, and then, but, but what's difficult is using that, extrapolating that data and then presenting it in a format which, you know, which constitute as action, it constitutes as actionable intelligence, right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the term. It's like, you know, you can have all sorts of information out there, but what, <laughs> what's the plan basically so yeah just like a bunch um, of broken puzzle pieces until you know somebody or a group of people come in together and actually make the picture out of it yeah mm-hmm. so intelligence gathering also is something that we do um and 
this is a bit more understandable to clients. They know what they want. Ah, business espionage, oh, that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's meant that we're able to communicate with the client a bit better compared to the world of CP. You know, M bus, D bus, what's it orthodox yeah, <laughs> and yeah. unorthodox D bus, right? <laughs> so no one's gonna have a seven point vehicle check, right? No one's gonna <laughs> understand what that means, right? Exactly. And I would imagine like um, selling due diligence as well. Like it's just, it's almost, you, you just integrate it into sort of the hiring process. If you know, if, if it's due diligence on new employees, you just say, well, it's just like a background check, really, um, you know, yeah. finding out about that employee. If it's due diligence on a business deal with another business, you know, one from one business mm-hmm. to another, it's just doing, you know, research into the other business. Like it's like you said, it's a very easy sell. Um, Precisely. Yeah. In, in that sense. Um, now the other thing I was sort of reading up on, so you, have you got a drone arm of Atlas as well, or is that a oh. separate <laughs> company? Is, is the ID or something? Yes. It's a completely separate company. I'm uh, business partners with, um, uh, with a member of the royal family, and um, we had an idea of of making a drone, you know, building a drone company uh, or unmanned aerial device yeah, company. UAD, yeah. Uh, yeah, so or UAS unmanned aerial system. But okay, yeah. so um, it, originally we wanted it to service the security industry, but we realized that I don't think people are ready for that yet. So we did the next best thing. Uh, we serviced the agricultural industry. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, on average, it costs what 150 ringgit, which is what 30 pounds, yeah. to f- spray pesticide on a hectare of of uh, palm oil. If you use your workers and you use your, you know, the machines that they bring in and the fuel, it's going to cost you quite a lot of money. Yeah. Now, and I know, and it also takes you what two and a half hours to do it. Now, with one single drone, it can be done for what. 80 ringgit okay. and it'll take 20 minutes. Yeah. Well, so very time mm. effect. I'd imagine like time and cost effectiveness, but also um, like, you know, these days, especially when we're talking about like climate change and stuff in terms of um, like your eco footprint, like it would be a huge saving on, on in that aspect as well. Mm-hmm. There's a slide deck on that, like, but um it's it's something like if you use a helicopter to spray spray pesticides, it's something like for an hour of you being in the air, it's like three tanks of petrol or something oh, that okay. a car would use. You know, like uh, it's it's something like that, right? So, yeah. uh, and if you use yeah, if you use a drone, it's it's way more, it's way more cost effective and it's better for the environment. Yeah, and I would imagine, uh, like, I mean, if you're if you've got labor, like, you know, having to. In well, these, in these feed them, lines. clothe yeah, them, exactly. Yeah, accommodate. You're driving. Maybe you're stolen Toyota Hiluxes to them. Um, <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, fuel there, fuel for the helicopter, and and I would imagine like humans. You know, we make errors, and you're probably not spraying as uh, efficiently or effectively, maybe as as you could from, oh, from another yeah. perspective. Is have you gotten any bite back from that? Like in terms of from like the workers, like going, are you replacing us or like what's the, or is it like more of an upskill thing where you could train current workers to you know how to use to operate drones? Yeah, nah. Look, um, I I think no matter what, uh, we're moving towards the end of the days of the coolie. You know what a coolie is, right? A guy who works in the estate, that sort of stuff, right? So there will always be need for human talent. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. 
but then these guys could be you best utilized for other tasks. Sure. Maintenance of vehicles, for example, they could be used for cleaning up the estate. They don't need to like travel deep into the uh, into the Pymol estate to yeah. like fertilize a couple of hectares or, or, or oh no bagworms have been detected 20 hectares in you need to take the hilux and drive all the way in yeah, and stay three nights sense. there yeah right so then so we, we actually said to them look you know we're not actually firing you no yeah. we're just redeploying you for things that better suit you better suit human beings nice. right so that's uh that's the other side of business but it's very sort of civilian less exciting yeah um yeah it, it's, it's again it's another sort of I don't know if this has been your mindset ever since or something, but it's just that sort of gap in the market that you've managed to, to find. And, and um, you know, I, I like the idea that you're doing this to, that's cost-effective, it's, uh, you know, economically effective, and it's also environmentally effective, which is, and, and then on the other side of things as well, you're also, by the way, you're none of you are losing your jobs. We're just going to, you know, redeploy you, like you said. That's, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Win, win, we don't win. want to make people lose. Yeah, we don't want to make people lose their livelihoods, man. We're we're not in, you know, like Pareto efficiency here, right? Where you, yeah. where you can't make someone better off without making someone else worse off. No, both right. can benefit at the moment, right? Yeah. So we can and do then, that. Will Will there be a, a um? I, I might have cut you off a bit too soon about the what you're doing with the drones. But are there? Is there uh-huh. going to be a security? aspect to it as well or um just i'm trying i'm I'm really trying stuff like uh, surveillance or um or even detection using autonomous drones which are tethered to uh to a power source to patrol a facility we're trying to explore that um but uh, we really need to work on our technology on that yeah and then present and then package it in such a way which is more cost effective than hiring 10 guards to do it Sure. Because right now hiring ten guards <laughs> is cheaper. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. So <laughs> as new technology you know emerges, like it's expensive, but over time it just you know, yeah it becomes more. Or, or rather, wages wages haven't increased for security guards since sure, 1999. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Right. Um, that's you know. I'd imagine like uh, you're having a drone, like you know, in big sort of, uh, especially Malaysia, like petroleum uh, sort of facilities, like securing mm. securing that sort of aspect anti-piracy like all sorts you know the, there's so many um, aspects that you could you could sell there um, that's right it's yeah so that's it's this is a brand new company that you you guys have started up um and uh and, it's not really brand new anymore i think we we formed it in 2019 oh okay oh wow so it's been two years now but yeah, but you see, you know, should we then count 20 and 2020 and 2021 as business years? That's yeah, the thing, no, right? exactly. I'm like, I, you know? we, we, my wife and I, we had our, you know, the, our second child in 2020. So he's like a quarantine baby. But I'm like, yep. if it wasn't oh. for him, this, this, these last two years might've been a write-off. Like I'd be happy to write them off. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, 2020 is just my Spotify playlist. All I remember Spotify, Spotify playlist, Call yep. of Duty. <laughs> And uh, constant days of ruminating and conference calls with teammates, and that's all I remember. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, there um, is not one single memory that stands out. <laughs> basically, it's, it's nuts. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Um, what, what are your um, now, you know, now, and and I think you put it in uh, uh, in a good sort of um, in a good way. It, like it's a geometric uh, coming, you know, up upwards trend, not a exponential. Oh, the Tatler thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's the current plan for Atlas, um, or, or you know you, yourself in general? 
um, I think the most important thing for us to get going are long-term contracts, at least uh, six or seven months. And we're working on that at the moment with current clients. Um, And what I really want to do is I want to build, rebuild our our risk management and close protection teams again. During the pandemic, I let some of them go and very, very regretfully. Um, and I think it's now time to get back in touch uh, with them again to see yeah. if they would be, they would care enough to come back and uh, do more good work for us. Meaningful yeah. work, I think, is the uh, is the key term here. Very nice. And and um, mm-hmm. and then as you look sort of post uh, the you know the next few months, like in, into sort of more long term future. Um, mm-hmm. what, what's the, do you have like a, like a five-year plan or like a, you know, end, end state that you want to get to without? Ah, cause it's funny, it's funny that you, uh, well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. Yes, we do have a five-year plan and that, that would be, be that would be to become the go-to, the go-to one-stop center for risk, risk management slash, you know, travel security slash close protection. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is about five-year plans is they require constant rejigging. So I look at my five-year plans in one-year plans and every quarter I review my one-year plan sure. to make sure that we're on track. So our current, uh, our current quarterly plan seems to be going okay. Yeah. You know, we've got, uh, we've got the required number of clients uh, to not only survive the quarter, but, uh, you know, there's a bit of money as well to reward people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, end of the year, I would hope uh, for us to have a like two actual squads of close protection officers uh, on on jobs uh, throughout the region yeah. and uh, a team of consultants for our risk management sector. Okay, That's cool. my objective. Uh, end of When I say this year, I mean 2022, not 2021. Yeah. It's a bit late for that, right? So. Yeah, you've got two, two more weeks, mate. <laughs> yeah, two more weeks, right? Let's do it, <laughs> right? So um, that's uh, that's a plan. Uh, five-year plan still remains. Just have to review it. Awesome. Um, th- thanks. Um, thanks again for for coming on. Uh, I think I'll wrap up uh, with, you know, we we're discussing earlier on about the effect, uh, and and let me know if you want to stop or, or anything. But the effect that y- your your father, you know, basically passing away in 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 front of you, uh, you know, as as a as a teenager, um, mm-hmm. that that effect that it had on you. Do, do you think that plays a, a big part in? your outlook in life now when you mentioned things like doing things that are meaningful helping you know society and like your countrymen uh that that sort of thing yeah i think because he died when i was 16 i've learned to treasure people a lot more yeah and to understand that sometimes all the money in the world won't get you one thing and that is time so whatever time I have left in this world, we placed in the world in a very place in this world for a very short time. Yeah. If we spend that time or waste that time, just seeking fame and fortune, what's going to be left at the end of our lives, you know, then, and I was reading this, this article about, I'm sure it's an anecdote somewhere where this guy went and interviewed people in a nursing home and he asked them what they did, what they didn't regret and what they regretted most in life. And I think, a good eight out of 10 people said, look, you know, the first one was, look, you know, I wish I'd taken more risks, which is fine. Right. And the second one was, I wish I had spent more time with the people that mattered most in my life instead of chasing money. Yeah. Because right now I have all the money, but I don't have time. Basically. Nice, nice one. That's uh... right. So that's, uh, 
I, I think I remember reading that same uh, similar article, and it, like, yeah, certainly put things in perspective. Like, yeah, you know, that's yeah. So obviously, you know, I I think you would know. You never know. I could walk out tomorrow, drive, and get into an accident. You just never know. Yeah. Right. So so why 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 would we waste our time in life trying to seek fame and fortune when you know what? If you make someone's life better, just one person's life better. That you know that means a lot to me. Yeah, no, perfect. Um, I think that's a great way to wrap up. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for for being on. Uh, happy holidays if I don't speak to you beforehand, and um, yeah, I can't wait to catch up eventually in yeah. um, in KL. I'm gonna say because we're in Malaysia and we don't have to be politically correct. I'm gonna wish you a happy Christmas, my friend. Yes, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> happy holidays. <laughs> All right. Thanks for uh, tuning in, everyone. Uh, that was Clement from Atlas uh, in Malaysia. Cheers. <laughs>